king. So who's your queen? It's Elizabeth. It is. It, she is indeed second. Soon to be replaced. Well, soon. Who knows when? But to be replaced at some time by Charles. So look, hey, what, do, what do we look for in a king? When you think of a king, what are the characteristics that we look for, that you look for? What kind of things, what kind of qualities do you look for in your monarch? Stability? Integrity, good one. Trust. Trust, yeah, along with integrity, absolutely. Caring. Yeah, caring, disposition. Anything else? Wisdom, absolutely wisdom. Yeah, to be someone whose word is trustworthy, reliable, absolutely. Let me ask, they're all positive things, great things. Let me ask... What would you say the defining characteristic that God looks for in a king? Who says that? Yeah. It is humility, Morag. The defining character that God looks for in a king or queen is humility. Do you remember Solomon, the great king of the Old Testament? Do you remember, or can you think of what his success turned on there was an event in his life to which we can trace back all of his success as a king what was that event it's in second chronicles he did he did when god asked him what can i do for you what can i give you what do you want from me? His one request above any other thing was this. This in 2 Chronicles chapter 1. God, give me wisdom and knowledge for who is able to govern this great people of yours. What was that request suggesting about Solomon? That he had a humble disposition. He knew that to make a success of his reign, he needed God. He needed to rely on someone else. Humility, and God honored that, honors him greatly, gives him both success as a king and the things he didn't ask for. Wealth, honor, riches. And so, friends, as that is the backdrop, that humility is the key characteristic that the Lord looks for in a king, in his people. I want us to enter chapter 4 of Daniel. And really, because that paints the background for us. We have there, and remember, it's always worth remembering, one of, one of the key techniques of understanding the Bible is to be asking when and why and where. And so we have to remember as we go through this morning, this is written about exile, memories of exile, to a people who've just come out of exile, who were now looking back on exile. Exile is that time when they were sent away from Israel. Our subheading this morning is Jesus is a greater king than Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Our, our, our theme is hope and grace in trial, but our subheading this morning, Jesus is a greater king than Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 4 begins, it's, it's in somewhat unusual style. A foreign pagan king is, as it were, dictating or suggesting or proposing that Daniel record his words, words that become part of Scripture. It begins like this, King 
Nebuchadnezzar to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world. And as we read on in, in those early verses, friends, we've, we come across what seems like a bizarre, bizarre episode. Here's a man who seems to be coming to a place of conversion. When you read the early verses of chapter 4, you realize that Nebuchadnezzar has just gone through a process of conversion to faith. Why is that unusual? Why is that bizarre? There's something really bizarre about the fact that chapter 4 begins with what seems to be Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of his recent conversion. Why is that bizarre? Well, there is that. So it's, it's a dramatic conversion. But something more, there's something in chapter 2, something in chapter 3 that makes chapter 4's conversion bizarre. Pardon? Well, there is that. He's always worshipping himself. But there's something a little more. Didn't it look like he was converted in chapter 2? Didn't it look like he was converted in chapter 3? Remember in chapter 2, when he, when he, when he sees uh, what Shadrach, um, Meshach and Bednego do, or what Daniel does in chapter 2, he interprets his dream. What's his response? Surely, that sounds like a conversion, doesn't it? And in chapter 3, when, when uh, the three lads um, uh, defy the king, remember his response? No other God can save this way. I mean, if that is not a conversion, then what is so, it's well, good point, Lorraine. Look, good point. What it tells you is this, is that you can have spurious conversions. It's really important to realize that. Not everybody who says, I will, is converted. Not everyone who says his name on a dot, did line is converted. Not everyone who says the sinner's prayer is converted. Absolutely. And one thing we mustn't do be these silly little churches who love to tick off numbers. We had 50 converts this week just because 50 people made a spurious response to Jesus. It's really important, friends, to understand this. Just because someone says, I believe, it doesn't guarantee that there's been genuine conversion. It wasn't in him. I mean, when you listen to him, this guy looked like he was converted, but he wasn't. Other than that, he has a very short memory. And so what chapter 4 tells us, friends, is that we have to be wary of spurious conversion. Do you, do you remember these words of Jesus? They're frightening words in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me give this challenge. We need to be serious ladies and gentlemen that our conversion is genuine not everyone who says to Jesus Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven that's a frightening frightening truth may God give us grace to search our hearts. I think what it tells us this is, is this, friends. The conversion to Christianity must be followed by substance. 
That is, there's, there's to be ongoing obedience to Jesus beyond I believe in him. There has to be baptism. I mean, are you aware of that? If you believe in Jesus, there has to be baptism. If you're sitting there and you say you believe in Jesus and we haven't been baptized, you know what that tells me? Do you know what that tells me? I can't trust your word. No, exactly. We don't, we're, not listening. we're not obeying Jesus. How can we be obeying Jesus? if we won't follow the fundamental thing he asks us of all believers, believe and be baptized. You see, there has to be substance to confessions of faith. There has to be obedience to his word. There has to be baptism, says the Bible. There has to be ongoing, regular attendance of church, says the Bible. There has to be participation in church, says the Bible. There has to be giving and sacrifice and mission, says the Bible. Do you see? We, we, don't, we don't want in Rivergate people just putting their hands up and saying, I'm converted. It doesn't mean anything. We want people at Rivergate who hook in to church, who live the life, who demonstrate faith. And so Nebuchadnezzar has had at least two false starts. Spurious faith. This third one seems to be Genuine. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. When you hear someone say that, get nervous. Get nervous. Sitting back on his laurels, enjoying and gloating in his success. You know this is going to turn pear-shaped, don't you? Verse 5, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. And so he called. Look, he said his vision, another dream. So remember his, what happened in chapter 2, how Daniel interpreted his dreams for him? So he's had this dream. And so he called Daniel to tell him his dream. Yeah? No. He calls the magicians, the sorcerers, the wise men. This man is definitely not converted. Okay? How do I know that someone has recently, someone is genuinely converted? Because they now behave differently. They're no longer doing what they used to do. This guy's doing exactly what he did yesterday. And so he's had a dream. He doesn't call Daniel. He calls his sorceress finally finally after all that he calls daniel along daniel along and this time he tells daniel the dream unlike remember the first time in chapter two he wanted daniel or whoever to both tell the dream and interpret it this time he tells him the dream and 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 the dream goes something like this it's got similarities with his previous dream remember the previous dream there was this big statue and he was the head well, this time there's a big tree, and he's the tree. So this is sounding good to him, like the previous one. And remember, like the first dream had was destroyed, obliterated. This second one, the tree is cut down, but there's a key difference. In the first dream, it was all future. It was the, the, the cutting down or the, the obliteration of the statue was about the reign of Jesus, years into the future. This cutting down of the tree, Nebuchadnezzar, is immediate. It's immediate. Look, verse 14, he called in a loud voice, 
cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and its birds from under its branches. In this dream, friends, there's something serious about to fall on the king. Verse 24, listen to this. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is a decree that the Most High God has issued against my Lord, the king. You will be driven away from your people and live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times or seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and give, and it gives them the things they wish. God is about to dethrone the king. He's about to cut him down and take away his pomp and pride. He's about to inflict on him seven years of madness, mental disorder. God is about to inflict, inflict mental disorder on this king until he comes to a place of repentance and faith in God. Nebuchadnezzar's life is about to be turned upside down and God is about to do it. Nebuchadnezzar's life is about to be turned upside down and God is behind it. Why? Why? I mean, what has he done? Why is God about to take his kingdom off him, about to humiliate him with a mental disorder, to leave him living like an animal for seven years? What's he done? He get certainly gets his attention, Lorraine. But there's something, something specific. What would you say it is? His pride. It's his pride. Listen to this. It is, it's exactly that. Verse 28. All this happened. Okay. He heard the dream. He had the dream. He heard the interpretation. We're wondering, what is he going to do that's going to cause God to act so judgmentally against him? Listen to this, verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months, just a year later, as the king was walking on his roof in the royal place of Babylon, having built this great empire. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. Having built this great empire, and he says to himself, and this is it. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? What's happened to him? It's all for self. He now sees himself as the root of the power behind his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar has fallen foul to that sin which almost destroys him, the sin of pride, arrogance, self-belief. And no sooner had he said the words, but God acted in judgment. And for the next seven years, Nebuchadnezzar loses his position is sidelined from the kingdom, he acts and behaves like an animal who loses all control of his mental faculties, comes to the very brink of death 
until finally God restores his sanity, brings him to repentance and faith. And I hope you understand this, friends, that there is not a single person in this church who has brought themselves to faith and repentance. God grants faith and repentance. We've been rejoicing this week over the conversion of somebody in this church. That act was not a self-performed act. God has to be behind it. So God brings this man to faith. Listen to this, verse verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, says Nebuchadnezzar, is able to humble. Pride and arrogance and self-belief. All the things the world promotes. Isn't it true? Isn't it all about? Have you ever watched a, a L'Oreal advert? You watch those, Linda? Yeah, you buy the products? Yeah, and, and they always finish off with, because I'm worth it. You're not! <laughs> Linda. Any one of us. None of us are. Jesus didn't die for us because we're worth it. We weren't. Okay? Pride, arrogance, and self-belief brought utter ruin to Nebuchadnezzar, brought him to his knees. Humility, reverence for God, and acknowledgement of God's greatness brought him back to his feet. Pride and arrogance and self-belief stand in opposition to the gospel. Christianity tells us that we have to become nothing to become something. Christianity is a religion that has at its heart humility. What kind of heart does God love? Ah, contrite and Humble hearts. So that's Nebuchadnezzar. Let's try and make some sense of this. What is his benefit for us? Well, firstly, what about the first readers? What would the first readers have taken away from this? Uh, ever before we think of ourselves, let's have a look. What would the first readers have taken away from Daniel chapter 4? Someone tell me. They're people who've been in exile have come out of exile and now reading the memoirs of Daniel from exile, God has inspired the writing of those memoirs. What is the message that God wants to get through to the first readers? He's in control. Absolutely. He's in absolute control. And that, here's something more, that just like Nebuchadnezzar, who acted in foolishness and in pride and ended up facing the discipline and wrath of God, so have the Israelites. I think that's what's going on, friends. Through Nebuchadnezzar's episode, God is saying to his people, that's you. That's you. Listen to these words from Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel, by your, this is God speaking to the Israelites just before exile. He goes, by your wisdom and your understanding, he's saying this is what you think. You think that by your wisdom and your understanding, you've gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver treasures. You think that by your great skill and your trading, you've increased in wealth. And you think because of your wealth, your heart, well, by your wealth, your heart has grown proud. This is what God says. Because you think you're wise, as wise as a God, I am going to bring foreigners against you. Sounds like the church in Australia, doesn't it? I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you'll, be, you'll die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say I am a God? Can you see the parallel between that and Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's pride and fall is all about Israel. They're the ones God blessed. They're the ones that became arrogant. They're the ones that thought they were gods. And they're the ones to whom God sent pestilence and sword and discipline. And finally, after how many years of exile did it take? Let me ask you, how many years of madness did Nebuchadnezzar need before he came to his senses, before God gave him repentance and remorse? Seven. How many years of exile did it take? Seventy. It's not by chance that the two figures are so similar. It took 70 years of exile to humble Israel. So the first message to the first readers, friends, is that God is able to use whatever means of discipline to bring his people to repentance. He did all this to Israel to bring them to repentance. He brought Nebuchadnezzar through that to demonstrate what his people had been like. And the warning to us is, and here's a warning. So this is a brace yourself moment, okay? We saw it in our very first message on Daniel, the introduction. God is able to, and very often does, bring discipline, hardship, difficulties to his people. To bring leanness to our souls to bring us to repentance and to restore us to faith. He does it with Israel. He did it with Nebuchadnezzar. He does it with his people. Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves. That's the first message. Secondly, I think Daniel chapter 4 brings us or leads us to anticipate something better. You see, when you see Nebuchadnezzar and his greatness but his folly, and then when you look through all the kings of the history of the world and you see their greatness, it's always mixed with folly. And the greater they become, the more corrupt they become. The more power they have, the more abuse you get. The, the, the stronger they become, the more evil they are. And I think Daniel chapter 4 causes us or moves us to cry, when, oh God, would you give us a king who we can rely on, trust in, have confidence in, know that he will last the course in integrity and faithfulness. He causes us to cry for a king who is better 
than Nebuchadnezzar. And so we come to our heading. Is Jesus such a king? Is Jesus better than Nebuchadnezzar? What was Nebuchadnezzar's chief downfall? His pride. He lacked the fundamental quality of great kingship, humility. Does Jesus possess such a quality? Is Jesus better than Nebuchadnezzar? Do we see in Jesus that quintessential quality of greatness? Humility. Listen to this. Yeah, listen to this. Philippians chapter 2. Who, Jesus, being in very nature God, great, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Do you see what he's saying? He was God, but he never boasted about it. He didn't go around telling everybody, I'm God, you know, I'm God. Do you know I'm God? Do you know I made you? He did not consider his equality and oneness with God something to brag about. And instead, instead, made himself nothing. Do you see that? Do we see humility in Jesus? Oh yeah! Though he was God, he made himself nothing and became humble and obedient even to death. Jesus is a greater king than Nebuchadnezzar. You see, his time on earth, and let me just develop this, his time on earth, which really is his reign on earth, is marked by the greatest of all qualities of, of monarchies, and that is humility. In humility. Here's a question. So during his time on, on earth, when he was lowly, humble, did he set aside his deity in order to become humble and lowly? You get the question? So we see in his, in his, in his, in his reign on earth, a humble, meek, lowly character. Did he set aside his deity in order to become humble? No. Thank you, Bron. No. See, we can't just relegate this and say, oh yeah, he was humble on earth because he wasn't God anymore. Was he God when he walked the earth? Yes, yes, yes. We have to understand Philippians chapter 2. When he said that he made himself nothing, he did not set aside his deity. Jesus never for a moment ceased to be God. If he ceased to be God for a moment, what would have happened to you? He wouldn't be here. What would have happened to the planet? He would have fallen out of orbit. Because what does Colossians say? That by him and through him all things are made. And what does he do? He holds all things Together, if Jesus laid aside his divinity for one moment, do you know when I was a young Christian, one of my lovely old friends at Pentecostal said to me, she was in a prayer meeting once and this lovely lady prayed and when she sat down, she finished her prayers by saying, good night God, sleep well. To which my friend stood up and says, please God, don't. <laughs> if Jesus laid down his majesty for one moment, the world would have ceased to exist. And what we see in Jesus, friends, is that during his ministry, he still kept the planets in orbit. During his ministry, he still sustained p 
perfect balance in the universe to sustain life during his time on earth, he still set, and this is a message for Lee in hospital, he still set the pace of our hearts. And so what we see about his humility and his meekness and his gentleness and his lowliness, that he was all a part of his deity. Though he was God, who in very nature, being God, verse 6, made himself nothing. Jesus is a greater king than Nebuchadnezzar. He's a greater king than Solomon and he's a greater king than David because he's the king par excellence because he's the one king who though he was great, didn't brag about it and instead humbled himself became a man obedient to death. And you see it all over his ministry. I want you to show you a couple of examples of how we see Jesus' humility as king. Do you know, do you, do you, if you ever listen to some of the conversations that Jesus has with his father, or when he talks about his father, let me give you one in John 5. Listen, listen how he talks about himself. I tell you the truth, says Jesus in a discourse. The Son, Jesus, can do nothing by himself. What's coming out in that? What do we see in Jesus there? I want you to know, says Jesus, to the world, the Son can do nothing by himself. What's he saying? And how does that compare to this? Next, next slide, please, uh, young lady, uh, Denise. Look, 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 or young man, <laughs> even, uh, Zach. Uh, look, how does that compare to Nebuchadnezzar? Is this not the kingdom that I have built by my great power? And listen to Jesus. The son can do nothing by himself. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the humility? And remember this in Matthew 21, Jesus comes into the city. It's his coronation where people accept him as king only for six days before they crucify him. But at least on this day, they, they accept him as king. He comes riding gentle and riding on a donkey. And they sing to him, Hosanna, son of David, which means save us. They're receiving Jesus as a victorious king, as a warrior king who's riding into the city, victorious, and they're shouting, save us, save us, save us. They're celebrating his victory. But Jesus is doing that, both accepting his position as king, which he is, but he's doing it in meekness, and humility. Why do I say he's doing it? He's riding in as a victor, but he's riding in in meekness and humility. Why do I say that? Because he's riding an ass. But why is that meek and humble? It's not a horse. You got it. It's not a horse. You see, Roman generals when they when they had success on the battlefield would ride back into the city on a higher mighty stallion, or white one, to, to, to celebrate their victory and demonstrate what a wonderful general, king they are. Well, what does Jesus do? He rides in victory, don't forget the victory. But he rides on a lowly, humble vehicle. 
he rides on a donkey. And again, demonstrates something of his, his humility. Okay, I've got about four minutes. I'm going to try and wrap this up for us. Friends, Jesus is a greater king than Nebuchadnezzar. And so Jesus sets the standard for Christians. That is the quality of the mark of genuine disciples of Jesus. The mark of Christ-like leadership. The mark of Christ-like leadership of home groups. Leadership of prayer teams. Leadership in a leadership team. The leadership of a church in the pastor. The mark that Christ looks for and sets as the example is the mark of humility. It contradicts everything the world tells you, but we are a contradiction of the world. The mark that Jesus sets as the example, the mark that Jesus looks for in leadership is humility. So we have to ask this question, don't we? Whether I'm a home group leader, prayer group leader, leader of some ministry in the church, a leader in the leadership team, or even the leader of the church as the pastor, does humility and a lack of bragging mark my leadership? Do I enjoy my position as a leader? Does it do something for me? Something for my self-worth. Do I get a buzz from it? I'm the worship leader. Not me, it's Kent. Do I get, do I get off on it? Do I guard it? That's mine. I'm the pastor. And don't you forget that Malachi. How do I respond? How would I respond if someone asked me to step down? That's when you really know how much someone is grasping at their position of leadership. Is m- These are getting stronger and stronger. Is my commitment to this church dependent on my hold on that leadership role. If they were taken away from me, would I be out the door? Is my identity as a Christian tied to my position of leadership? I think Andrew David even is a wonderful guy because that man has gone from here to there with the most wonderful sense of humility and meekness. To sit there week by week when he used to stand here week by week is the ultimate mark of a great pastor. God bless you, mate. Let me tell you a story. This is a true story. When I was in Kent, in my church, in Kent, one of my first church, a neighbouring Baptist church was telling me this story that as a pastor he had an offer from one of his members 
And this member wanted to be a deacon. You know what a deacon is? You know, you have in some churches, you have a leadership structure, elders and deacons. Well, he wanted to be a deacon. And in order to get this position, which normally is something that the church votes on and selects, in order for this person to get to this position, he offers the pastor $20,000. He offers him 20, this is a true story. 20, not dollars, pounds, 20, I'm in the wrong country, <laughs> 20,000 pounds that he'll donate to the church if he gives him that position. I guess you're thinking, doesn't he, friends? I guess you're thinking, would we be prepared to buy a position in the church? Are we sitting there desperate? to be the next leader of some ministry. When's he gonna ask me? Doesn't he realize I'm gifted? I'm called. I know Pam's been after my job since I've been here. I know she has. She spends the whole week reading the Bible, trying to get every answer possible to every question I ask in the hope that when I'm gone, she will be the next leader of the church. Oh, okay, okay. Look, friends, listen. Jesus is a greater king than Nebuchadnezzar because he did not consider his equality with God as something to brag about, but instead made himself nothing. Even though he was God's son, he acknowledged he can do nothing. The greatest mark of leadership is a man or a woman who has no confidence in themselves, who, who, who projects humility, who doesn't want to be seen or heard or known but he's happy to lead the church in that ministry in obscurity. Who says of themselves over and over again, I can't do anything. And anything and everything I do for the church is the grace of God at work in my life. Because if truth be told, I am a complete nimkampook. I think I've said that right. Incompetent and unable to do anything in and of myself. They're the leaders we're looking for. Someone who has no confidence in themselves, who wants no limelight for themselves, who can be given a ministry to get on with it without any show or bragging or boasting. And so I'm gonna leave you with this. I've been talking to leaders, let me talk to us all. What is our passion? It may not be, we may not be leaders, but is our passion our glory? Is my Christianity about projecting Lorraine or Jerry? Exalting Brenton or Jeff? Or is it about projecting and exalting Jesus. May God give us grace to be men and women who want to be known for being Jesus. Jesus. And we're going to sing. We're going to sing shortly. And uh, Selena's chosen a wonderful song that just sums up everything we've been looking at. I exalt him. Can we sing that together? 
And as we do make it our prayer, maybe a reflection or a response to what we've heard. May Jesus be first in us. Amen.